Chapter 10, Part 1 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905 by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Rising in the West, Part 1. The universal chorus of applause which in the United States greeted President Cleveland's Venezuela message continued for precisely three days. At the end of that brief period, discordant notes were heard, so harsh and so insistent as to put an end to what had seemed to be a perfect political harmony. It was, indeed, Mr. Cleveland's fate never to taste in public office the sweets of popularity for any length of time, and he was now to enter upon the most trying year of all. The praise which he had lately won alarmed the Republican leaders. They had perforce commended the bold front which he had shown to England, Yet this sudden popularity seemed likely to upset their plans. Was the President thinking of a third term? Mr. Chauncey M. Depew, in a published interview, suggested this hypothesis, and it created something like a panic among the gentlemen who were asserting that they could elect even a yellow dog in 1896. Therefore, almost immediately, the Republican press began to qualify its praise of Mr. Cleveland and to forget its enthusiasm of a day or two before. The New York Sun, which once again had drifted into the anti-Cleveland ranks, disclosed a new line of criticism in an editorial remark. If the eccentric statesman and instinctive antagonist of the more vital American sentiments who now occupies the White House had dealt with the Venezuelan affair from the beginning and the creditable spirit shown in his message, it is a question whether the situation would not now be satisfactory and without danger of war. Note 1, page 438. The Sun's lead was quickly followed by the Tribune, which had at first spoken of the President's straightforward manly words, but which now called his diplomacy that of a self-opinionated tyro. But it was not the political so much as the financial aspect of the situation that raised a storm of disapproval, and this, curiously enough, in those quarters where the President had hitherto found strong support, as well as in a section where he was already hated. The possibility of war with England had frightened Wall Street. On the day after the message, stocks dropped several points, and the market was decidedly weaker at the close. On the 19th, when the full gravity of the situation had become known, there was something very like a panic. The soundest securities declined in value. It was said that European holders of American stocks and bonds were preparing to sell them in large blocks. According to an estimate generally accepted at the time, the depreciation in values consequent upon the prospect of war amounted to at least $400 million. It was then that Wall Street turned on Mr. Cleveland. Hitherto, the bankers and brokers and other financiers had lauded him for having, as they said, preserved the national credit and saved the country from repudiation. But now that stocks were down, these same men cursed his very name. Whether his policy was brave and honorable or the reverse was nothing to them. Margins had been wiped out, money had been lost. That was all they cared about. And so it came to pass that the President was wounded in the house of his friends. It was then that he lost for a while the support of one who had been among the most devoted, the most consistent, and the most able of all his advocates in the press, Mr. Edwin Lawrence Godkin, the editor of the New York Evening Post. Mr. Godkin at that time divided with Mr. Dana the honor of preeminence in American journalism. No two men could have been more utterly unlike in temperament, in training, or in character. Mr. Godkin was an Anglo-Irishman by birth, and as a young man he had been the correspondent of the London Daily News during the Crimean War. 
In the East he had made the acquaintance of men of great distinction in many fields of effort, from whom no less than from his reading he acquired an invaluable fund of knowledge relating to politics, diplomacy, economics, history, and incidentally human nature. During the American Civil War he acted in the dual capacity of correspondent for the Daily News and for the New York Times, thus establishing a definite connection with American journalism. In 1865 he was made editor of The Nation, and in 1881 he became one of the two editors of the Evening Post, his colleague being Mr. Horace White. Mr. Gotkin's comprehensive knowledge of the great world, his cosmopolitanism, and his personal associations gave him a distinct advantage over those American editors who became famous in spite of their early disadvantages. Such men as Weed and Raymond and Greeley were possessed of natural force, but they lacked breadth of view and liberality of thought. They were infinitely keen at detecting the drift of each cross-current of popular opinion, but they were deficient in the qualities which would have enabled them to guide that drift and to mold and shape opinion for wise and worthy ends. Mr. Godkin's editorial ideals were entirely at variance with those of every other great American editor. He did not set himself directly to appeal to the masses of his adopted countrymen. He never wrote down to the intellectual level of the man in the street. His appeal was rather to men of intelligence and cultivation, men who were really representative of the best elements in American life, professional men, scholars, authors, lawyers, clergymen, great merchants, experts in their own subjects, and for these he wrote in a style that was wonderfully effective. His leading articles presupposed in their readers not merely a natural intelligence, but education. They were full of illusions of the kind that are heard in the familiar intercourse of men of culture. Yet nothing could have been further removed from pedantry or pose. The manner was ease and simplicity itself. The sentences were short and to the point. The phrasing was crisp and neat and oftentimes colloquial. The whole tone was that of an accomplished gentleman conversing with a set of intimates at his club. And Mr. Godkin had also a delightful wit at his command an appreciation of the comic which made his persiflage delicious and which also tipped his delicate irony with destructiveness. Note 2, page 440. This last quality, his irony, was a weapon that he used with consummate skill. Its touch was light, yet it could make the apparently invulnerable argument of an adversary shrivel like a leaf. Anything more intensely exasperating than some of his ironic strokes cannot well be imagined and he was the only one of Dana's editorial contemporaries who could rouse that seasoned veteran to serious wrath. Mr. Godkin, unlike Dana, had a high regard for principle, and his championship of any cause was as conscientious as it was courageous. Many, indeed, were the causes for which he seemed at times to fight almost alone, yet of which at last he lived to see the triumph. To that triumph his steady hammering, in season and out of season, very powerfully contributed. It is not too much to say that nearly all the most important questions of American political history from 1881 to 1896 got their first public hearing largely through the influence of Mr. Godkin. They were, of course, bound to arise and to clamor for solution. But it was Mr. Godkin's clear provision which perceived their imminence, as it was his vigorous pen that won for them attention. The reform of the civil service, the introduction of the Australian ballot, the enactment of rigorous election laws, the revision of the tariff, the divorce of municipal government from partisan politics, and the establishment of a stable monetary system. All these issues were fairly forced upon the public mind through Mr. Godkin's influence. 
and as the whole spirit of his work was different from Dana's, so was his reward a different one. Dana must still perhaps remain in popular remembrance the greatest of all American editors. He was read by more people, his personality was the best known, he amused and entertained and furnished an infinite number of quotable bits and passages for comment. But he exercised no lasting influence, for he was utterly devoid of any real beliefs. His admirations were sham admirations. His enthusiasms were sham enthusiasms. He was sincere only in his hatreds, and the spectacle of an old man shrieking forth an expression of his hatreds was in the end more repellent than edifying. Mr. Godkin, on the other hand, was never very widely known. Yet, through his selected clientele of readers, he exercised a power of persuasion beyond that of any other publicist in the United States. Each of those whom he convinced became a propagandist and an intellectual leavener of the community where he lived. And so, if Mr. Godkin himself was never famous with the sort of fame that Greeley and that Dana won, it may be said of him, as Mr. W. D. Howells once most aptly wrote of a greater man than Mr. Godkin, what he had taught had become part of the life of his generation, and was thus far alienated from any consciousness of him in those whose conduct he had largely shaped. As might have been expected, a personality so marked as that of Mr. Godkin possessed the defects inseparable from its qualities. In declaring his opinions, he was wont to adopt the tone and manner of the superior person, and to assume an air of absolute infallibility such as few are quite prepared to recognize as attainable in this imperfect world. A lack of fairness was another mental characteristic of the man. Editorially, he would seldom or never admit that he had erred, even when the proof of error was incontestable. Again, his censure was at times so bitter and so unsparing as to create a certain sympathy with those who suffered from it. Indeed, among his victims were many who had once been Mr. Godkin's friends and fellow-workers, but who had had the reprehensible temerity to differ with him as to public questions. On such as these he always poured the choicest vials of his wrath and showed himself intolerant beyond belief. They had, in his eyes, committed the unpardonable sin. Having once seen the light of the pure Godkinian revelation, they had sinned against it. Hence it was that the most persistent readers of the Evening Post were the very men who spoke of it with jibes. They read it, and were influenced by it, yet at the same time they felt themselves continually irritated by its tone. One of these gentlemen, a very eminent New Yorker who had sometimes felt the touch of Mr. Godkin's chastening rod, is said to have spoken of the Post as, "'That pessimistic, malignant, and malevolent sheet, which no good citizen ever goes to bed without reading.' And to the same gentleman was ascribed another and very widely quoted epigram, uttered in answer to a friend who was deploring the general demoralization of New York. But what can you expect, broke in his hearer, of a city with two such leading newspapers, the sun in the morning making vice attractive, and the post in the evening making virtue odious? Perhaps the most marked of Mr. Godkin's mental attributes was his inability to appreciate the power of sentiment and the force of human passion. For these things, like one of his favorite philosophers, J.S. Mill, he seemed unable to make any allowance whatsoever, but he took a cold-blooded commercial view of almost every public question. Had he remained in England, he would have been a little Englander of the straightest sect, improving even upon Mill and Cobden and the prophets of the Manchester School. As an American editor, he applied the same standards to American affairs. In his eyes, no war could be justifiable because it cost money. 
no threat of war was ever to be made because it depreciated the value of stocks and bonds. National honor was a thing to be written of in derisive quotation marks and to be regarded as a word belonging only to the vocabulary of the political swashbuckler. With such beliefs, it may be readily conceived that Mr. Godkin read the President's Venezuela message with a mixture of horror and disgust, horror because it might mean actual fighting, and disgust because it seemed to evince so much ingratitude to Mr. Godkin. Ever since the name of Cleveland had been heard in national politics, the Evening Post had been his thick and thin supporter. It had defended him against the scandal-mongers in 1884. It had praised the achievements of his first administration. It had urged persistently his second candidacy. It had made his financial policy its own. And now he had dared to break away from all the Cobdenite Godkinian traditions and to show himself as pugnacious in an international dispute as though he had been a Cass, a Marcy, or a Blaine. Small wonder, then, that the Evening Post declared as soon as the message had reached its office that the President's fulmination has no moral support whatever. On the 19th, it pronounced his action criminally rash and insensate. The national finances already in a perilous condition will be shaken as they have not been since the Civil War. Mr. Cleveland has frustrated his own wise attempts to adjust them on a sound basis. The President's message is a standing and very insulting threat to a first-class power. The Post quoted against the President his own dictum that patriotism is no substitute for a sound currency. It spoke of his jingo insanity. It declared his policy to be marked by insolence, abusiveness, and brutality. Everyone who favored it came in for a share of Mr. Godkin's wrath, and he even accused a well-known administration senator of appearing at a public banquet in a state of intoxication and of delivering a speech which was hiccuped out to a deriding, hooting, and insulting audience. Though what this had to do with the Venezuelan question, it would have been hard for even Mr. Godkin to explain. The Evening Post's special following took up the same parable. Clergymen preached against the righteousness of war. Some college professors gave their verdict to the effect that the President's view of the Monroe Doctrine was all wrong. Note 3, page 445. A convocation of Baptist missionaries passed resolutions declaring that the United States might better go to war with Turkey on behalf of the Armenians than with Great Britain on behalf of the Venezuelans. There was, in fact, in the United States something of the same divergence of opinion as existed in Great Britain. But the country as a whole soon ceased to think of this particular issue because of the immediate revival of an older one. The uneasiness of Wall Street was speedily reflected in a new drain upon the gold fund in the Treasury. The Morgan Belmont Syndicate had carried out its promise, and for nine months the reserve had been efficiently protected. But in November there was felt a slow but steady outflow, which brought the fund to less than $80 million, and in December the hoarding of gold once more began. The menace of war led bankers to ship gold to Europe. Only three days after his Venezuela message, and on the eve of the usual adjournment for the Christmas holidays, the President sent a brief communication to Congress urging it to take some action for the betterment of financial conditions. As this advice was utterly ignored, Secretary Carlyle was directed to issue, January 6, 1896, a circular asking for subscriptions to a new loan of $100 million. Note 4 page 445. This was the fourth and last of the bond issues made by Mr. Cleveland in order to protect the gold reserve as it was also the largest. 
Unlike the two preceding ones, this loan was offered for popular subscription. Bonds of a denomination as low as $50 were engraved so that the most modest investor might have an opportunity to bid, and an entire month was to elapse before the sealed proposals were opened. In deciding to offer the loan in this public way rather than once more make a bargain with a syndicate, the President was undoubtedly influenced by the scathing criticism which had been visited upon him. He would never admit this, either then or afterwards, yet one cannot well think otherwise. Moreover, Congress had taken the matter up with serious intention. A House bill provided that no bond sale should be made thereafter save by popular subscription. Senator Elkins had offered a resolution declaring that bonds should not be sold at all by private contract. On the whole, the President must have felt the sting of an almost universal censure. Therefore, he now arranged a loan before the Treasury was actually in distress. Note 5, page 446 and he went directly to the people rather than to Wall Street. As it turned out, there were 4,635 bidders for the bonds, and the loan was oversubscribed by $400 million. It was a triumph for the advocates of the open sales. To be sure of the bids received, only 828 were accepted, and in the allotment of the bonds, Messrs. J.P. Morgan and Company, who had offered to take the entire issue, received some $62 million, while the other bidders received $38 million. But it is to be noted that the lowest bid which the Treasury now considered was at the rate of 110 and 7 tenths as against the 104 and a half paid by the Morgan Belmont Syndicate in the preceding February. This fact alone would seem to be a sufficient condemnation of the Syndicate transaction though Mr. Cleveland never would admit the justice of this criticism. Note 6, page 447. Reviewing the whole series of bond issues after the lapse of many years, and regarding all the circumstances connected with them, there appears not to be the slightest reason for impugning the good faith, the integrity, or the patriotism of President Cleveland. All through those trying times he acted as he believed the highest interest of his country bade him act. But in the matter of the bond contract with the Morgan Belmont Syndicate, there can be little doubt that he was guilty of a serious mistake. Not in the arrangement which necessity drove him into making, but because he delayed so long as to create the unfortunate necessity. That he learned the lesson of his error was shown by his management of the fourth and last bond issue. During his final year of office, the Treasury suffered no more from speculative raids upon it. Wall Street had found that the siphon process could be no longer made a source of private gain. But the fact that the President had again sold bonds to keep the gold reserve intact fanned the already fierce resentment of the Silver Party into a more furious flame. The Western Silvermen cared nothing for the effect of the Venezuela message upon Wall Street. If it caused a panic there, so much the better. If stock gamblers had been ruined by it, well and good. If securities had dropped four hundred millions in value, this was a cause for grim rejoicing. The prospect of a war with England was very popular all through the West, not upon patriotic grounds alone, but as likely to bring an era of easy money and good times. A writer in the Oregonian, published in Portland, Oregon, undoubtedly expressed a widely prevalent feeling when he declared that the people of his state and many other Americans wished a war because... They all know that the wealth of the world has got into the hands of a few and that there is no relief for the masses. Business is at a standstill and will remain so until something happens. We are at the mercy of England as far as our finances go, and this war is our only way out. 
Such was the prevailing sentiment in the western states so far as the Venezuelan incident was immediately concerned. But the new gold loan, with its great addition to the public debt, made for the sole purpose of insulting silver, was the last straw upon the back of the far-from-patient populists. By this time men had formed the habit of speaking of gold and silver as though the two metals were possessed of human attributes. They were not only animified, but personified, and both vices and virtues were ascribed to them. A thousand horse-throated orators depicted the infamy of gold and the rectitude of silver. Gold was the coward metal which basely sneaked out of the country when times were troublous. It was the accomplice of money-sharks and usurers, the enemy of labor, the traitorous propagator of poverty and want. Silver, on the other hand, was brave and honorable, too noble to desert the people in their hour of need. It was the debtor's ally, the benefactor of the poor. To it were addressed words of as passionate adoration as ever lover lavished upon mistress or devotee upon divinity. In truth, at this period, a large portion of the American people was touched by something very like emotional madness over one of the most prosaic questions of pure economics. The tide of populism which had begun to rise in 1889, which had swollen to a flood in 1890, and which in 1892 had temporarily been diverted into democratic channels, was now roaring through the West with a fury that swept everything before it. In all the silver-producing states it seemed to be wrecking the older parties, while in Kansas and Nebraska, men and women and even children turned away from the ordinary vocations of life and gave themselves up, body and soul, to the politics of unrestrained emotion. The fact that women had the ballot in these states may account in part for the extraordinary scenes that were enacted there. Certain it is that during the year 1896, entire communities seemed to be afflicted with a strange obsession resembling the hysteria which swept over Europe at the time of the First Crusade. This comparison did, in fact, suggest itself to a very keen though unsympathetic observer, who has left a vivid picture of the time. It was a fanaticism like the Crusades. Indeed, the delusion that was working on the people took the form of religious frenzy. Sacred hymns were torn from their pious tunes to give place to words which deified the cause and made gold, and all its symbols, capital, wealth, plutocracy, diabolical. At night, from ten thousand little white schoolhouse windows, lights twinkled back vain hope to the stars. For the thousands who assembled under the schoolhouse lamps believed that when their legislature met and their governor was elected, the millennium would come by proclamation. They sang their barbaric songs in unrhythmic jargon, with something of the same mad faith that inspired the martyrs going to the stake. Far into the night the voices rose. Women's voices, children's voices, the voices of old men, of youths and of maidens rose on the ebbing prairie breezes, as the crusaders of the revolution rode home, praising the people's will as though it were God's will and cursing wealth for its inequity. It was a season of shibboleths and fetishes and slogans. Reason slept, and the passions, jealousy, covetousness, hatred, ran amuck, and whoever would check them was crucified in public contumely. Note 7, page 450. These people honestly believed that their happiness and prosperity were being sacrificed unpityingly to the greed and money-lust of the rich men in the East, that the President of the United States was the pliant tool of a plutocracy without bowels of compassion, and that in obedience to his masters he was barring out the blessings of free silver, which meant independence and wealth and ease to every toiler in the land. 
no wonder that for a time there was madness in the very air. As is the case in all great popular convulsions, the human scum and driftwood first came hurtling to the surface. There was a wild cry for a leader, and in response a thousand leaders self-appointed leaped into sudden though ephemeral prominence. Strange figures these, for the widespread distrust and hatred of all professional politicians became at last a hatred and distrust of every man who possessed the ability and training which make leadership effective. And so there came forth from the obscurity of incompetence and failure a crop of demagogues in whom were fearfully combined the irrational and the grotesque. Itinerant preachers, broken-down country editors, farmers who had failed to make a living on their farms, eccentrics whose peculiarities at any other time would have classed them with the insane, and leather-lunged fanatics with a gift for raving hour after hour. These were the guides and prophets who for a while exercised an absolute control over one of the most intelligent and most purely American communities. A leading article which appeared in a Western newspaper at about this time was widely quoted all over the United States because of its pungent diagnosis of conditions in the state of Kansas. One paragraph may be quoted here since its nervous slangy phrases are like flashlights in their brief intensity. What's the matter with Kansas? We all know, yet here we are at it again. We have an old moss-backed Jacksonian who snorts and howls because there is a bathtub in the state house. We are running that old Jay for governor. We have another shabby, wild-eyed, rattle-brained fanatic who has said openly in a dozen speeches that the rights of the user are paramount to the rights of the owner. We are running him for chief justice so that capital will come tumbling over itself to get into the state. We have raked the ash heap of failure in the state and found an old human hoop skirt who has failed as a businessman, who has failed as an editor, who has failed as a preacher, and we are going to run him for congressman at large. He will help the looks of the Kansas delegation at Washington. Then we have discovered a kid without a law practice and have decided to run him for attorney general. Then, for fear some hint that the state had become respectable might percolate through the civilized portions of the nation, we have decided to send three or four harpies out lecturing, telling the people that Kansas is raising hell and letting the corn go to weeds. Note 8, page 451. End of chapter 10, part 1.